to the second lecture of the third week of the 1984 Rare Book School. Remember that Ms. Marjorie Gray Wynn, the Edwin J. Beinecke Research Librarian at the Beinecke Rare Book and Manuscript Library of Yale University, will be speaking here tomorrow night on uh, the title varies. The lecture is usually the same, and it's always splendid. It's about being at Yale for the past 40 years and watching Yale grow. Uh, it's a, I think it's fair to call it a legendarily uh, successful lecture that, uh, if you're in the neighborhood, you would uh, much profit by to listen to. Those of you who are regulars here have every reason to accuse me of cowardice because of a certain event that did not occur either last Thursday or on Monday. But we're now back on track, and I have to inform our speaker that one of the unique perquisites of lecturing before the members of the Rare Book School is the gift of a Rare Book School 1984 t-shirt. And my staff asks me to remind you that other t-shirts are available for sale, just like that one, in the lounge <laughs> for uh, the trifling sum of $5 per t-shirt uh, at the reception, which immediately follows this lecture, to which I hope you will all uh, proceed. We have as those of you who were here on Monday are well aware, freshly shampooed carpets <laughs> to await you. We discovered when we went to the reception on Monday that the lounge for the first time, at least since the late 60s, was having its carpets shampooed <laughs> as a surprise, which it certainly was. <laughs> the Our... Uh, Delight in having Mr. W. Thomas Taylor here this evening comes as no surprise to anyone, I'm sure. And his title, uh, which was not entirely of his own choosing, but a little, Errors in Modern Fine Binding, uh, is something we're all very much looking forward to listening to him talk about, Mr. W. Thomas Taylor. Thank you, Terry. I can't wait to wear my T-shirt on the Guadalupe River in Texas. I think that will... People will wonder what that's all about. <laughs> As a general rule, I have always found it advisable not to accept speaking engagements or writing assignments dealing with subjects which were not of immediate or vital interest to me. The results of breaking this rule will be familiar to many of you. You assemble your materials and sit down at a table in as pleasant a circumstances as you can arrange and the pen hovers expectantly above the yellow pad, waiting for the signal from the brain to begin. Suddenly something catches your eye. It's a hot summer afternoon, and outside your children have appeared in bathing suits, romping about the yard, laughing sportively, and spraying each other with the garden hose. The pen hand twitches. What was it you were supposed to be writing about? Oh yes, damn, why had you ever agreed to write on the subject? The children splash your windows and beckon you to join them. What the hell, the pen is put down with a sigh of relief and grabbing a beer on the way, you go out and join them and do what any sane man would prefer to be doing on a sunny Saturday afternoon. But the lecture date approaches with draconian finality. You sit down at another desk in your office this time, T minus 21 days and counting, and you try to bring your mind to bear on the appointed topic. What was it? Oh yes, errors in modern bookbinding. You fiddle with the paper clips in front of you, rearrange the exhibition catalogs you have gathered for reference, look nervously around, then in desperation begin pacing the room, hoping that inspiration, the most elusive of deus ex machinas, will descend and overcome intellectual inertia. Failure is inevitable. It is now T minus 15 days and counting, and the few paragraphs above are as far as I have gotten. There was one abortive start, Five or ten uninspired pages, beginning with a hackneyed little introductory historical survey, ending inevitably with quotes from Cobb and Sanderson. 
My associate and fearless editor, Elaine Smith, read it and only remarked, where's the point? It eludes me, or words to that effect, and I consign the effort to the trash where it belonged. How and why has this happened? When Terry Bellinger asked me if I would talk about the state of contemporary bookbinding, I accepted happily and quite casually. Sure, Terry, my pleasure. And you'll pay me for it too? What a pleasant surprise. <laughs> Understand, moreover, that I like to write and like to give lectures. It can be stimulating work and it's good for the ego besides. Writer's block is unknown to me in its more malignant forms. And I have written and lectured enough on contemporary bindings and binders that one would think that another statement would be fairly routine and automatic. But this is not the case. Strange as it may seem, I don't care to write about or talk about contemporary bindings very much anymore. Some may say, thank goodness. For the rest of you, please bear with me while I try to explain. My interest in book binding is not that old. It goes back to 1976 when I issued a catalog entitled American Fine Printing in the preface to which I stated in discussing the changes that had taken place in the making of press books that, quote, taste in binding has changed as well. Fine cloth, particularly when combined with decorated papers, is now preferred over the traditional leather, which is now quite expensive and furthermore not really as durable as cloth. This seemed to me then a healthy development. Ignorant as I was of the fact that leather only lacks durability when not properly prepared, as was the case with many antiquarian books I handled by firms such as Revere with the joints paired to paper thinness. I soon received a long and very patient letter from Mary Schlosser, then president of the Guild of Bookworkers, upbraiding me for my attitude, telling me that it was people like me who kept handbinders hungry and feeling misunderstood. We made an appointment to meet at the Grolier Club the next time I was in New York, and Mary, with her infectious enthusiasm, showed me slides of recent work by British and American binders. I was impressed, though to tell the truth, at the time I wouldn't have known a good binding from a bad one. I was thoroughly saturated with the typographer's traditional contempt for the binder, believing that a binding's only justifiable function was to protect the typographer's expression of a text, which, in turn, was to be as restrained as possible in keeping with Beatrice Ward's celebrated image of the typographic book as a crystalline goblet worthy to hold the vintage of the human mind. In the face of so exalted a purpose, the binder's best and true course was to be as subtle, appropriate, and above all, unobtrusive as possible. I have come to reject Beatrice Ward's eloquent imagery, and likewise I'm not content with Cobden Sanderson's notion that a binding should, quote, be looked upon as the temple of the great spirit enclosed within it, end quote. These are noble sentiments, and I will be the first to concede that if forced to choose a single book for a desert isle, I would take a well-thumbed paperback of Montaigne over the most gloriously produced edition of a less satisfying text. But having genuflected to the text as the raison d'etre of the printed book, we move on to its graphic expression, which is our concern here. Personally, I think that the influence of Cobden Sanderson, Beatrice Ward, and their ilk was to stifle creativity in English bookmaking for half a century. English typography has never recovered. At its best, it is of dependable competence and lamentable dullness. The attempts at innovation have been sporadic and clumsy. Likewise, the impress of Cobden Sanderson's style and thought weighed down an entire generation of English bookbinders. With rare exceptions, such as Sybil Pye's Cubist bindings, English binders in the 1930s and 1940s were doing work essentially indistinguishable from that done at the turn of the century. When Douglas Cockrell, Cobden Sanderson's most notable pupil, was doing a binding as trite as this in the late 1930s, Pierre Legrand had been doing bindings as interesting as these in Paris for more than a decade. And the first English attempts at innovation in bookbinding were no more satisfactory than those in book design. An early Edgar Mansfield binding like this one is insipid for my taste. And even a later and better Mansfield binding, such as this one done in 1951, looks pale and derived when put next to this one by Rose Adler, executed in Paris in 1949. And how do we compare it at all to a Bonnet binding of the same period, such as this one? In short, you can keep your crystal goblets inside your temples if you wish. I prefer a great book to be like a grand opera. 
As we all know, nights at the opera can be erratic experiences. Sometimes the singing is good, the sets and costumes dull and unimaginative. More often these days, with lavish productions shared between cities, the staging is dependably impressive, but perhaps the tenor has just arrived three days before, Cadac stares at the prompter and destroys any notes above the middle of his range. He is redeemed, however, by the sweetness of the soprano, and the orchestra may be on good form. In other words, there is usually something going on of interest, and we now even have English supertitles, above the stage, that is, as an added distraction. Books are not unlike this. We come to them for many things, sometimes just for the text, sometimes for illustration, sometimes for typography, and sometimes for binding. The typography may be excellent, the illustrations horrid, as in many limited editions club books, or the illustrations interesting, but the design and press work appalling, as in many recent English attempts at the Livre d'Artiste. Occasionally, there is a remarkable binding on a very ordinary book. Cobden Sanderson did a number of these. Like a typical night at the opera, each kind of book has something to recommend it to our attention. And this something, a bit of knowledge, an artistic insight, a hint of vision, can be gleaned from an inspection of a book conscientiously crafted in any of its parts. But in my experience, it's not the bits and pieces, however pleasant or stimulating they may be, that keep the opera goer buying season tickets or the book collector buying books. It is, rather, the hoped-for moment when the panoply of components combines mysteriously into a work of consummate artistry which transcends one's expectations and leaves one awestruck. It's easy to understand this happening at an opera or a concert or standing before a great picture, but I find that many people don't quite understand how this can happen with a mere printed book. Perhaps I'm just impressionable, with printer's ink in my veins, even the smell of a well-produced book appeals to me, but I am still deeply moved and filled with admiration when I hold in my hands a consummate piece of bookmaking. This doesn't happen very often. It requires a book that is perfect in all its parts, illustrated, if there are illustrations, with power and insight, designed with flair and printed immaculately, all in a binding that is imaginative, energetic, and superbly executed. With every passing year, my notions about what qualifies under this criteria become more refined. I have become more difficult to please, and if sometimes deeply moved, I am not always easily moved. I have come to agree with Cyril Conley, who wrote in his book, The Unquiet Grave, that, quote, the more we read, the sooner we perceive that the true function of a writer is to produce a masterpiece, and that no other task is of any consequence, end quote. Is this not true also for artists, printers, and yes, bookbinders as well? Cobden Sanderson certainly thought so. We may snicker at his thundering solemnity and bemoan the zeal that led him to toss Emory Walker's type into the Thames. But there is something intimidating and challenging for us in the goals he set for himself. He said, quote, I have always the same customer, posterity, and always the same standard, perfection. A psychiatrist would probably exhort us to eschew preoccupation with posterity and perfection. It's liable to make us neurotic, and it is certainly inimical to the unfettered pursuit of happiness. But as I sit here at my desk daydreaming about a baseball game, T-minus 12 days now and counting, I realize that it is the contemporary binder's apparent unwillingness to accept perfection as his goal and posterity as his customer that has soured me on the subject of designer bindings. That this is true, I believe I can demonstrate. But before the binders in the audience begin hurling tomatoes at me, let me hasten to add that this is far from entirely the binder's fault. He or she represents only half of the equation, the other half being the patron for whom the binding is intended. Some binders, it is true, go merrily along creating work simply for the gratification of their own artistic spirit, with no customer in mind at all. Most design bindings, however, are done on commission for a specific client on a book of the client's choosing, or are done for a specific exhibition on a book of the binder's choosing, but still with a view toward eventual sale to an institutional or private collector, or even, I shudder to say, to a dealer. It follows that the standard of quality in book binding has been and still can be set by the client as much as by the binder. 
there are, of course, exceptions. But the general tendency is indisputable, and the best evidence of it exists in the history of bookbinding and collecting in France. Since the 16th century, French bibliophiles have been the most discriminating and fastidious collectors of bindings in the world. As a consequence, the French tradition in binding has been preeminent. In no century is this more true than the 20th. One may cavil about the fact that modern French bindings don't open easily, or that there is a certain coldness to their virtuosity. But the truth remains, without question, that the best and most interesting bindings done in this century are almost all French, done for collectors who both demanded and encouraged superlative craftsmanship and design. Dorothy Minor recognized this in her important bookbinding exhibition at the Walters Art Gallery in Baltimore in 1958. For the 20th century, she included nothing but French bindings, and she wrote in her introduction, quote, if fine binding as an art is to survive today, it must be because the book lover wants it. There is no lazy way to encourage and preserve the practice of an art. Both artist and patron have to work hard at it, the one striving always for the highest expression of his craft and the most faultless execution, the other seeking out the craftsman who is in sympathy with his tastes and enthusiasms and then encouraging and demanding his utmost. I'm not comfortable commenting on the tastes and standards of American private collectors. I don't know all of them, and those I am acquainted with are fairly careful and knowledgeable in the selection of bindings and binders. I would, however, like to say something about the public exhibitions of bindings which have been held in this country since 1970. For particularly when there is an illustrated catalog prepared from the exhibition, these exhibitions represent the public and permanent expression of the standards of our culture. If anyone should be responsible for setting standards, it is the public institutions, art museums and libraries, that take it upon themselves to gather and display the work of contemporary binders. However, a review of the published catalogs I have been able to locate, 11 of them, reveals a sad lack of exacting standards. There are bindings in virtually every exhibition that are simply embarrassing and which never should have been accorded the permanent recognition and approbation implicit in catalog publication. I can understand how this happens. As we are constantly told, there has been an explosion of new interests in the crafts, including bookbinding, in the last 15 years. New binders appear on the scene with bewildering frequency, eager young men and women ready to hang out their shingle as designer binder after a few years of study. This is, alas, a wholly inadequate period of training for anyone required to perform brilliantly every function in the making of a book binding. Ten years might be a more reasonable estimate of the time required, and indeed the old period of apprenticeship in the British trade was seven years. Being an apprentice under that system was a far cry from attending casual classes or three-day workshops. And I'm amazed to find young binders listing workshops among their professional qualifications in catalogs. If you were apprenticed out to a firm under the auspices of the worshipful, worshipful company of stationers, you were bound to that firm for seven years, during which time you were not allowed by written contract to get drunk, fornicate, or even make it legal by getting married. If you were a finisher, you did gold tooling and nothing else, day in and day out for years, likewise for coverers, forwarders, etc. By the time you finished your training, if you were good, your hands worked almost instinctively at their tasks. Things have changed. Within a few years of beginning to learn bookbinding, many today propose to teach it. And few are content to be mere craft binders. No, being a designer is binder is being in the big leagues. And they want to be called artists, not craftsmen, or even craftspersons. This isn't unusual. Indeed, it is typical of our times, in which every job title now has its euphemistic version, intended to provide the illusion of elevated status. Booksellers like myself are no exception. The Antiquarian Booksellers Association of America now issues a completely superfluous quarterly journal called the Professional Rare Bookseller, the word professional always in italics to emphasize the fact that some of us no longer want to be thought of as the trade. Likewise, the annual journal of the designer bookbinders is called the new bookbinder, the adjective evidently necessary to help us understand that the fellows of that organization are apart from, God help them, old bookbinders. Jeff Clements, then president of the designer bookbinders, 
noted in his introduction to the new bookbinder number one, quote, with the exploration of creative potential in the visual arts, designers, artists-craftsmen, craftsmen-designers, and creative engineers have turned their attention to fine bookbinding as a means of expression. Wonderful! So many hyphenated humans, full of enthusiasm and new ideas, all looking for a venue for the expression of their talent. Organizations like the Handbook Binders of California, the Guild of Bookworkers, and the Designer Bookbinders all actively promote the exhibition of members' works. How can the museum or library director resist such a tide of enthusiasm and high spirits? A bit of clear thinking would help. For instance, one might reflect upon the fact that in any field of human endeavor, there are at any given time only a very few gifted individuals at work. Bookbinding, historically and in its present state, is no exception. I would venture to say that in the English-speaking world, there are perhaps ten gifted bookbinders, people who can be depended upon to produce with regularity interesting designs that are well executed. This fact should not surprise us, but its implications seem to escape those who mount exhibitions. For an important exhibition entitled Handbook Binding Today in International Art, held in San Francisco in 1978, an admirable catalog illustrated in color was produced featuring work by 40 different English and American binders, with no binder represented by more than three examples. The Guild of Bookworkers 75th Anniversary Exhibition, held in 1981, contained in its contemporary section work from more than 50 binders, though some of these were admittedly semi-professional or amateur, again with only one or two examples per binder. Though this tendency may be laudably democratic, it does result in the exhibition of some lamentable lapses in taste and craftsmanship. Perhaps, again, the French approach suggests an alternative. A major show held in New York in 1947 entitled Masterpieces of, Modern, of French Modern Binding contained 98 bindings, the work of only nine binders. Likewise, a more recent exhibition, La Rayeur Originale Française, held in 1964 at the Museum of Contemporary Crafts in New York, contained 142 bindings by only 12 binders. Such discriminating selection helps create the carefully cultivated impression that all French book bindings are as original, exciting, and exquisitely crafted as those exhibited. Of course, this isn't the case. A look through the recent John Fleming Prusalis Juvelis catalog of Livre d'Artiste will show just how ordinary modern French bindings can be. But the French have the good taste not to exhibit the mediocre, even though Americans may try to sell it. Beyond the fact that there are precious few really good binders, it should also be acknowledged that even the best binders sometimes produce indifferent examples of their craft. Again, why should this surprise us? We know there are great paintings by Turner that fetch $10 million at auction, but then there are more than a few ordinary Turners. A visit to the Turner rooms in the Tate Gallery makes the difference apparent. Likewise, Paul Bonnet, who designed over 1,650 bindings in his lifetime, did any number which he himself considered inferior. So judgments must be made. It is not enough to say that a book was bound by Philip Smith or Ivor Robinson or Deborah Evitz or Michael Wilcox. The question remains, is it a good or significant example of his or her work? Do not be cowed by reputations. Do not believe for one instant that just because a binding is by a fellow of the designer bookbinders, it has received a nihil obstat, and that if it looks dull or silly to you, it must be because of your own lack of taste. If you have gone to the trouble of informing yourself of the difference between good and bad in bindings in terms of craftsmanship, and feel yourself possessed of a reasonably cultivated aesthetic sense, then by all means make judgments upon what you see. It is not only your privilege, it's your responsibility. For not, only, not until we begin to look at what we see with clear and critical eyes will the quality of designed bindings in the English-speaking world begin to improve. Today, it is T minus five days and counting. I find that after all, I did have something to say about the contemporary binding scene, although what I have said so far is not very positive. Part of my reaction, I must confess, is against my own stupidity. I am quite annoyed with myself for having been one of the people who refused to see, who cheered on with blind enthusiasm while a framework of judgment was constructed, which I now feel obliged to dismantle if at all possible. 
I wrote an encouraging review of one mediocre show and an introduction for another catalog, which I think now perhaps should never have been produced. I commissioned a series of 14 bindings on one book, all by American binders, some of them of truly dismal quality, and then had the poor judgment to write an article about them. I have even had the painful experience of writing a check for over $1,000 for a binding I considered so badly designed and executed that I later gave it away with a frank apology to the recipient so that I wouldn't have to look at it anymore. Designer bindings reduced to a tax write-off. So if annoyed, I am also humbled by my own history, nor will I assert that I am an expert on book bindings. Far from it. I have a certain amount of experience in dealing with contemporary bindings and binders, and I have undergone a gradual and sometimes painful education in what constitutes a good binding. But I still have much to learn. What I have to share is simply my personal experience and what is observable to an eye willing to be critical. On a more positive note, I can also share with you a few hopes, fantasies if you will, about what might be done to improve the situation. The first thing I would like to see is an exhibition mounted which might legitimately be called Masterpieces of Contemporary English and American Bookbinding. I would restrict it to English and American binders because however much I admire French bindings, I am sufficiently chauvinistic to want to encourage the making of masterpieces, which should be, as Cyril Conley suggested, our chief aim, in my own country. Moreover, the French and Anglo-American traditions in bookbinding are too different to blend happily. In France, there is a designer who usually gets the lion's share of the credit, supported by a rather anonymous group of artisans whose peerless virtuosity in their very specific tasks makes possible the, realize, the realization of the designer's vision. By contrast, in our tradition, with few exceptions, a single individual performs every function in the making of a binding, from designing to sewing to finishing. A competent individual working alone can produce one fairly complex binding in a month's work. Had Bonnet been required to do every part of each of his bindings by himself, he would have had to work steadily for 137 years to achieve his output. An exceptional talent is required for a person to produce a brilliant binding in the Anglo-American tradition. One must have an original mind, a perceptive eye, and extraordinarily well-trained hands. How rare a combination, and how wonderful when encountered. I believe there is a special spiritual excellence attached to a binding that is entirely the creation of one individual. And other things being equal, I prefer such a binding over one created by a small army of artisans. As I have suggested, there are perhaps ten binders at work in England and America who produce excellent work with reasonable consistency. But who are the ten? Who is going to make the difficult choices? Who is willing to alienate the binders not chosen, perhaps one's own friends? And who dares arbitrate taste after all? I hear these objections raised every time I broach the subject. But is it really impossible? Let us say that we wanted an exhibition of ten bindings each from ten binders. A call goes out for binders to submit slides of fifteen design bindings they have executed. Immediately, all but about 25 binders are eliminated for the simple reason they haven't done 15 design bindings. Then if you don't want to be responsible for choosing 10 from the 25, you form a committee, of course, committees being the best way known to evade individual responsibility. Seriously, in choosing the final 10, taste and design need not and should not play too large a role. For I agree that in judging art, good taste is often achieved at the expense of originality. The truth is, inconsistent craftsmanship will eliminate, by easy consensus, a number of those remaining. In the end, of course, judgments will just have to be made. But if I have one point to make, it is that such judgments are necessary if a standard of superlative quality is to be established and maintained. Even the ten binders selected would not have all of their work displayed indiscriminately. A selection would be made from the examples submitted. The end result of this process should be, and could be, an exhibition displaying a great variety of style and technique, but without a single obviously inferior piece of craftsmanship or design. It could be done. All that is required is the will to do it, and of course someone with a very deep pocket to underwrite it all. Any volunteers? I would like for a moment to acknowledge that excellence is occasionally recognized in this country. The Guild of Book Workers has sponsored three one-man shows at the Watson Library of the Metropolitan Museum of Art for Frank, Mer Frank Mallory, Gerard Charrier, and Michael Wilcox, all three deserving individuals. 
The Guild has also set up a committee on standards charged with the responsibility for formulating standards of craftsmanship for its membership. There are various reasons why I am less than sanguine about the chances for its success, but the attempt should certainly be applauded. We must also face the question of how in general we can recognize, insist upon excellence without unduly discouraging those who want to take up the craft. For a start, we might assert the dignity of being a mere craft binder, a person who can competently forward and cover a book using a variety of techniques and materials and do basic gold and blind tooling that is precise and clear. This is in itself no mean feat and it would be appropriate to recognize excellent edition bindings of this sort with exhibitions of their own. There is, of course, less glory in being a craft binder than in being a designer binder, but I would think there could be a compensating satisfaction in doing something really well rather than grasping beyond one's capabilities in performing indifferently. In reviewing the exhibitions of the last 15 years, it really isn't the horribleness of a few bindings that stands out, although these are quickly and obviously noticed. It is rather the ordinariness of most of them, competent but uninspired, lacking in the vivifying energy that emanates from a truly first-rate work of art. I fear that the Peter Principle, that people rise to the level of their incompetence, applies as much to bookbinding as to corporate management. Can't we acknowledge this, yet still encourage people to do their best with the talent they have, again stressing there is dignity in doing anything well on however modest a scale, I can think of several individuals that do mostly small edition bindings, often half leather with decorated paper of their own making. They take their craft very seriously, take great pride in their work, and produce bindings that are wholly admirable, meticulously crafted, perfect of their kind. These binders should be respected and encouraged. Of course, it is all very well and good for me to stand up here and preach to you about good, bad, and indifferent binders. However, I realize that it is much easier to talk about bindings than to make them. And I often feel presumptuous for talk to talking about things which are so far beyond my own capacity to produce. It would be better, indeed, if binders would criticize their own work. I find that although binders are quite willing to be harshly critical of the work of others, and occasionally even of their own work in private, they have a natural reluctance to voice such opinions publicly. The community of binders is small and egos fragile. So amateurs like myself are left to do the job, however imperfectly. But perhaps at this point, you may be weary of my pontificating. Perhaps you might like to see some bindings and discover just what it is I mean by a good binding or a bad binding. So I have quite a few slides in that slide projector, and I have no more prepared talk. I'm hoping that we can get some sort of conversation going about the slides that I'm going to show. Uh, there are several groups. Some of them, I think, are superb bindings. Some of them, I think, are average bindings. And some of them, I think it will be apparent to you all, are terrible bindings. Um, the first group I'm going to show are the bindings that I commissioned myself on a book called Eureka, uh, which I published in 1977. Eureka is, is an 18th century French novel about a Senegalese slave girl who is brought to Paris and raised as the kind of personal pet and protege of a French noblewoman. And the tragedy comes when she grows up and has no place in society, even though she's well-educated and beautiful and full of charm. There's just no place for her in French society. And so in, in sort of the 18th century manner, she uh, goes off and dies of melancholy. Uh, it's not exactly the brightest subject in the world for a, a binding. But I'll show you what people did with it. These are in no particular order. This one is by Eleanor Ramsey, a binder in San Francisco. And it's pleasant. Um, you know, I don't think there's anything particularly inspired about it. But the craftsmanship's good, and, and uh, you can't complain about it. Now, if anybody wants to differ with me about anything that I say about these bindings, please shout at me. Uh, because except for the instances where the craftsmanship is obviously bad, taste in bindings isn't anything that, that anybody has a monopoly on. I can't remember, Terry. I mean, I haven't had these bindings for a fairly long time. So I, I, I really can't answer that question. This one was done by Gérard Charrier, 
I don't think it's a particularly good example of his work. In fact, it was the first one that was delivered to me of this series, and I don't know if you can quite imagine how it felt to me when he handed it. He handed it to me and said, the book wasn't deserving of my best effort. And so this is what I got. Uh, I, I can't quite describe what I felt like when I opened this box either. Uh, this, this binding is by a fellow of the designer bookbinders, and I don't think there's much that can be said about it. Oh, Terry. <laughs> this binding is by Jamie Shallock, now Jamie Kampf, and I think it's sort of nice. Uh, it, it, it describes very well the plight of Orica as she stands over there on the right front cover. And I was fairly pleased with that binding. Uh, this is another one I'd like to forget. That's, that's supposed to be a female torso in the middle of that binding. Um, the leather where it was, where she, he tried to put it together with the vellum looks like it's been mauled with, a, with an axe. Uh, I mean, it's, it's really a, a poor piece of craftsmanship. Was it your question to price all these? Oh, no. No, I, no. That's one of the very scary things about commissioning bindings. Um, especially when I started out, I made a lot of mistakes because I didn't know who I could trust instinctively with a commission and who I couldn't. And so I was always cowed by these people who call themselves designer bookbinders, and I figured they knew better than I did what they were doing. And I never asked for designs. I never approved designs. And so then you get a binding that, that is appalling, and all you can do is write a check for it. You know, and it's, it's, it's a sad experience. And, I, you know, I've learned now... Uh, better than that. This, this binding is by Michael Wilcox. Um, I think it's a very fine binding. The, 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 the profiles that go along with Orica's head are those of a man named Charles who was white and for whom Orica had a hopeless love, which is finally what drove her into the, the, the melancholia. And it's, it's, it's a fine piece of craftsmanship. This binding is by Fritz Eberhard. Uh, his gold tooling, I think, is a little bit fuzzy in general. It, it probably looks fuzzy in the slide, and it is, in fact, fuzzy. Um, I, you is know, that color correct? That color, I can't remember. <laughs> it, it was, it was a, a very bright sort of red, mm. and I, I, I just can't remember whether it's exactly correct. What is it? Is it a goat skin? Yes, it looks like it's goat. Yeah. <laughs> this binding is by Don Etherington. All you can see is the front cover. It's a photograph taken in a box. Again, it 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 reflects a little bit of what was in in Jamie Camp's binding of the of the bars. You know, the the the, gold, the blind tool vertical lines indicating Arika's imprisonment and her displacement in a white world. I think Don would agree with my description of that. I don't know. I mean, I, I really can't remember on some of these bindings, because uh, I haven't seen them in a year. Uh, this, this is, I mean, this is sort of trite. Uh, this was done by a, a very prominent teacher of book binding in San Francisco, and I don't know what happened with that row of fleur-de-lis down there, why they're put on some sort of inset panel of, of Morocco of the same color. And, and the design, you know, I think it had been better if all those fleur-de-lis and the tricolor had been left off and all you'd have had is the profile. It would have been simpler, not quite so flashy, but I think it would have been much better. And, you know, the craftsmanship's just not very good. Okay, the, the next group of bindings I'm going to show are from a designer bookbinders exhibition at the University of Texas at Austin. Uh, these bindings were to be on books either by James Joyce or Eric Gill, and they were exhibited there last year. Uh, and again, I think we'll find a variety in terms of their quality, both in, in their design and in their craftsmanship. Uh, this, and I'm going to read to you the statements of some of the people. Uh, the, the statements come from the designer book, the, the new bookbinder, the journal, of the designer bookbinders, from 
the number three last year. This binding is by James Brockman, and I, I don't really have much of an opinion on that binding one way or the other. Oh, that's on Joyce and Olivia Pluribel. <laughs> yeah, the, some of these slides aren't very good. I had I didn't make the slides on on these particular bindings. This is a binding by Anthony Keynes. I'm going to have to speed up through here. We're going to be be here a lot longer than I thought. Uh, and as and this one is as well. This technique of puckering leather, I'll show you one of his bindings later where I think it's very effectively used, but I think here it doesn't do very much for the binding at all. Uh, this is a binding by Brian Cantle on Gill's Art and Prudence. It's fairly nice. You know, it's not, not anything spectacular, but it's nice. And this is a binding by Lester Capon. I'm not sure whether he's actually a fellow of the designer binders or what they call a licentiate, someone who's still studying. Uh, you know, the it's not very well done in any case. This binding is by Jeff Clements. It looks like every other Jeff Clements binding. Uh, large flat areas of color uh, with intersecting blind tooled lines. Uh, you know, if you've seen one, you've seen them all. This binding is by Don Etherington on the first edition of Joyce's Ulysses. I think that's a very nice binding. Uh, I think there, there's an example of the puckered leather used uh, to form the river in Dublin, you know, which works very well. And this is a binding by Deborah Evitz, which I think is a very nice binding. And I would like to read Deborah's statement out of Designer Bookbinders 3, because I think it's a very reasonable statement. On what level does one work as a designer bookbinder? As an artist absorbed in self-expression, as a craftsman primarily concerned with function, or should one try to walk a tightrope as a combination of artist and craftsman trying to keep within the functional needs of structure and utility whilst decorating the covers with a design which uses the text as a springboard? I try to follow the last approach. It seems to me the most logical and the only one that will not be swayed by fads and fashions. And it should lead in the end to a binding that has the qualities of classicism so apparent in, for example, Roger Powell's Hamlet and Ivor Robinson's Jerusalem. Sorry, I can't show you those bindings. That's the Guilford Gospels, right? Uh, this is by Elizabeth Greenhill, and it's you know to me it's neither here nor there. It's, it's binding. It's same way with that one. I mean, it's pleasant enough, but it I don't think it has very much going for it. This is a nice binding by Angela James on the four-volume Golden Cockerel Four Gospels. You can't see it because it's too distant, but the little the little strips of, of uh, horizontal leather or the, or the Canterbury pilgrims as they go along on their pilgrimage from vo uh, volume to volume. It has sort of an impish quality about it. You know, she got away from the obvious gill associations that one could draw out of it. This is a binding by Trevor Jones, and I think Trevor Jones's bindings are just wonderful. They're always original and very different. He paints on the leather. He does all sorts of things with it. Uh, this is another example, which is very fetching, on Anna Olivia Pluribel. Uh, this is uh, Denise Lubet's binding on the uh, Troilus and Cressid, also illustrated by Gill. This is an example, you know, of a binding. I, it just doesn't move me. You know, she's. Put, what would he say about that G, Terry? That's. <laughs> wouldn't think wouldn't think much of the vine forms either. They're not nearly as nice as Gill's. Uh, this is a binding by Elizabeth Marples, and I, you know, so what? This is a binding by Bernard Middleton, who's the best book restorer in the world, and he can do absolutely amazing things in making an 18th century book look like it is, you know, brand new. Uh, his design bindings tend to be very conservative and very well done, um, and very pleasant, but not very exciting. This is by Dio Del Foster, who is a sculptor who's taken up bookbinding. Uh, the the uh, piece of wood sculpture on the sculpture on the left opens up, and the book goes in it. <laughs> and there are white gloves. There are white uh, gloves provided for handling this that, that that also go in the box. It's a binding by Bruce Plumley. It's just pleasant. Not much else to be said about it. Oh, this is a binding by David Sellers. Uh, you know, I said that that other binding had. You, you had white gloves. Well, this one you need rubber gloves. Um, it w when it arrived in Austin, it still it still was sticky. 
with, with whatever the, the binding agent that was used on all that those appliques was, and it smells so badly, you would open up the display case and it would almost knock you over. It's a very forbidding object. <laughs> Here's another forbidding object. Uh, this is Philip Smith's binding on uh, Joyce's Finnegan's Wake. Um, I have a lot of other Philip Smith's bindings to show, so I'll just go past that one. This is a binding uh, by Romilly Samaras Smith, which, again, I don't, you know, it's neither here nor there. Uh, it's backwards. Missed one, Terry. Uh, this bingo board. And this is, uh, this is a binding by Susan Spring Wilson that, I don't know, just doesn't do very much for me. I don't think it's very well done. Either very interesting or very well done. <laughs> now I would like to show some bindings that I do think are extremely well done. Uh, because I would like to end this on a very positive note. This is a binding by Frank Mowry on the Arion Press Moby Dick. It's extremely simple and extremely elemental. It's just the, the pattern of whale skin uh, stamped into alum Todd pig skin. And I think it is perfect for the book. You know, there are no pyrotechnics there. It's just a, a perfect binding for that book. Alum Todd pig skin. Yeah, he had it blown up. He had, you know, an illustration of whale skin blown up and had that done to make it look like it. I don't know. Yeah. Mm -hmm. This is a binding by Gerard Charrier, and I think it's a terrific binding. It uses a variety of unusual materials. Uh, yeah, very interesting way. The colors are good. The execution is is flawless. Uh, it's a very fine piece of work. This I'm going to show an illustration out of this book because this binding that I'm going to show you is not a great binding by any means, but it's my idea of what an absolutely appropriate design binding could be. This is an illustration out of Joyce Lancaster Wilson's edition of Stevenson's A Child's Garden of Verses. And this is the binding that, that Betty Lou Chaika did on it, which I think is just perfect for the book. And she even took the, the theme along on the, the top edge and, and did that treatment on the top edge. This, I think, is a spectacular binding that Deborah Evitz did for the Bridwell Library. It's on uh, the Bodoni Oratio Dominica. It's a combination of uh, a sort of classic pattern, those those rectangles are drawn straight out of the pages in which the type specimen the type specimens were enclosed and yet you have this wonderful movement and energy coming out of the the Arabic calligraphy it's just a beautiful piece of work and that's the edge treatment on that book which I think is is wonderful this is a binding by Anthony Keynes and this is what I'm talking about about puckering being used in a strong and sort of elemental way on a large book uh, I think it's very effective in a large format and done with some strength like that. The earlier ones I thought were just sort of weak. Um, but this one I think is very fine. Now I'm going to get on to some fireworks, if I may. Uh, we got a few minutes left, Terry? Oh, okay. These are Philip Smith's bindings. Um, to give you a little, uh, I, a little introduction to Philip Smith, he is, in my opinion, the most interesting, the most controversial, and in many ways the finest English bookbinder. Uh, there are a lot of his things that I wouldn't want in my house. They, they, they just don't appeal to me at all. And yet he is a superlative craftsman, and his books are absolutely beautiful sometimes. And I think that at least, you know, he has the courage to try. You know, you can sit around and do very safe and very pretty designs all your life, and, and that's fine. But Philip is trying to do something different. And I think when you try to do something different, you're going to fail a certain amount of the time. So what we're going to look at, I think, are a series of bindings, some of which are failures and some of which are successes. And everybody has to decide for themselves which are which. I'll read you some excerpts out of a letter that he wrote me that maybe will give you an idea of what he's thinking. Uh, he doesn't bother to complete sentences all the time, so it's not me uh, forgetting to read things. This is just the way he writes. He talks about bookbinding as being a green field on which there are stone sheep being mere decorative bookbinders, and he thinks of himself as a living sheep. 
This is what I mean by living sheep. The decoration, for want of another word to describe it, is part and parcel of the artist's necessary philosophical statement about the medium and about the physical nature of it also. So with book art. There will continue to be bookbinders who don't understand the possibilities, who are not artistically inclined, who will decorate for fun and therapy, who will not know what is going on and not care, who cannot originate design, but who will take what they think is modern design and do what they can in their aesthetically uninformed and limited ways. This has always happened and probably always will, but it, some will become educated to the differences. And later he said, the just decorated is becoming a bore to bookbinders, although it is still the majority market. Everything just decorative has been tried. Now this, you know, it's not surprising to hear a bookbinder say it. It's just surprising it's been said so late. I mean, that was said about music and about painting almost 100 years ago. Uh, with these bindings, when he sent these slides, he said, I've made some comments, too, about aims and intentions. Unless these are understood, people will continue to mistake my activity for that of the traditional decorative bookbinder. I'm still trying to find simpler ways of clarifying the differences and pointing out what it is to a, what it is a few of us are trying to do now that the book is long past its hand-bound era. Okay. Show you some. This is on King Lear. This is a binding that he did in 1967. I'm gonna I'm not gonna read all of his. Uh, no, he did it for. Uh, Anthony Fair and Anthony Fair sold it to uh, Colin Franklin and where it went from there I don't know okay well there we are and this is the, the first of his book walls now the second of his book walls it's an attempt to remove the book as art object from normal situation in a bookshelf to create a larger format and to solve problems of sets by linking designs over several covers. The panels are, of course, two-sided with different with different images on each side. Um, of course, he wasn't the first person to think of linking sets of books together. It, it's been done quite a lot before, but the book walls are something new to him, and they're very controversial. Some people like them, and I think, but as Mr. Breslauer described them as a sin against the Holy Spirit of the book. So you can take your choice. This is Vesalius's De Humane Corporis Fabrica. Um, with, and that, that it has a, well, I'll read you this. Attempt to suggest three-dimensionality of a book by illusory, interpenetrating figure. The back view walking into the book is seen on the back cover. In other words, if you turn that book over, you see the back of the skull and the back of the skeleton walking into the cover. Um, that's another little book he put there just to demonstrate scale. Two books. The black, the blacks, the black rectangle is the pedestal on which uh, the the um, skeleton is standing, but it's part of the binding. The little figurine is an entirely different book. That he put it there just to demonstrate how big the one is and how little the other one is. The little one is about four and a half inches tall, and Philip carries it in his pocket and hands it to you to, to handle and play with. The little one. Oh, let's see. Prayers written at Valima by Robert Louis Stevenson's. Yes, there's a little book in there. This is his binding on Hamlet, Exploration of Morel as Image Maker, which used over 4,000 fragments. Crypto-figurative example. Many images making up a larger image, hidden but relevant details, a movement in the whole cover from flat abstract imagery to illusory three-dimensional imagery. I can't penetrate Philip's prose very often, so. Uh, it's the Cranach Press Hamlet. I think so, yeah, that was the one, right, on vellum, yeah, right. <clears throat> and this is Macbeth. This is one of a set of the Dove's Press Bible. I'd like, I wish I had slides of the whole set because it's quite a remarkable set of books and very beautiful, I think. All, it's almost all individual pieces of leather. See, what he does, uh, Deborah, correct me if I'm wrong about this, but these, these are, are pieces of leather that are put together and compressed and then and, and put together with epoxy and then sliced so that you get a cross-section made from, from the, the various layers of pieces of leather. Which he maintains, perhaps correctly, will stay together. But I should have thought that any 
Oh, yeah, but I, I, I like things that appall conservators. <laughs> you know? Yeah. This is the Cimmerillion by Tolkien. Uh, the top is detachable. <laughs> this is The Wasteland by T.S. Eliot. The theme of which is set in the first line, April is the cruelest month, breeding lilacs out of the dead land. Going into the book suggested by the multiple cutaways, extra impressions created by changing, by changes created by detaching or attaching the mask, and you'll see on the next slide, that is with the mask detached. That's the front cover. That's with the mask attached. This one doesn't do much for me. This is a combined volume of New Directions in Bookbinding and the book Art and Object. This again uses a device to suggest the cover image penetrates into the dimensions of the book block by an actual cutaway with an infinite regress landscape and an illusory cutaway of a similar landscape. Play with actual and illusory relating to the idea of New Directions in the book as Art Object. And this is a detail of that. I mean, that's, that's really pretty remarkable to do that in the cover of a book, I think. Whether, whether you like, you know, the, the, the totality of it or not, that's a fine piece of craftsmanship. Mm -hmm. And this is uh, the Lord of the Rings. This is, he's done over 40 bindings on the Lord of the Rings, most of them having the eye as part of the imagery. And this, again, I, I, it just doesn't do anything for me. Uh, no. In fact, he says that he decided, where well, I wish I could find it, that, that, that tops, since they don't interfere with the opening of the book, need not be removable. They are not obstructions. That's right. <laughs> okay. I will read to you now, as I promised Philip I would, his, his final statement. It should be emphasized that I am not a binder of books as such, but an artist working through the medium of books. A painter is not given the appellation canvas stretcher, and that's a very poor analogy he's using there because a book is something other than a piece of canvas. To express certain ideas and emphasize the nobility of the book as a medium, the enclosed set of slides shows the gradual development toward this goal over 30 years. Each book is selected in order to try to get over one or another aspect of the idea of book or to find analogies between book and the statement made in the book. As James Joyce might have said, bookness is the whatness of all book. Confusion arises in the minds of such as Breslauer, who is not alone in his criticism of the way books are being treated, because they mistake the activity and aims of the artist with that of the conventional binder or decorator of bindings. Binders also compromise and confuse the activities of the true creators in this medium by trying to imitate the activity without the real conviction. They remain makers of stone sheep. Uh, you can agree with it or disagree with it, but uh, they're very interesting. I would like to show you a few slides, if I may. I'll go through these quickly of another set of bindings that I commissioned that I'm very proud of, as opposed to the other ones, which I wasn't very happy with. These are a series of 12 bindings by Michael Wilcox, a binder working in Toronto, uh, who is a superlative craftsman. His designs vary in quality, as I think most people's designs vary in quality, and there's some of these I would say I like better than others. But... He has never done a binding for me that is not superlatively crafted. And I can show you slides of 10 of the 12. One of them is lost somewhere between England and Canada right now, and he's still working on the 12th, and we're going to publish a little monograph about them when we're finished. But I will go through these fairly quickly because, oh, there's another Philip Smith one. I for, oh, I forgot about these just as well. Oh, okay. This is on Fungus and Curmudgeonly, a book that... Uh, <laughs> that includes a tape recording, among other things. <laughs> see if I can find something more. What was the hands? Okay, the hands are Philip Smith's hands holding a New Testament in Psalms. Let's see if I can get it wrong direction. Yeah. This is made as a sculpture, not as a binding. 
Binding has always been a means to an end for me from my earliest beginnings in 1949. So it's made on, a, that was made in 1983. And I suspect that's another one of the books that he carries in his pocket to show people. But again, you know, you cannot like it, and let's say you don't like it, but that's an amazing piece of craftsmanship to do that with leather. I mean, it is very, very well done. Well, Samuel Johnson once went to a concert in London and she wasn't enjoying it. Somebody said to him, he's being played, it's very difficult. And Johnson said, difficult, but if you got it, we're impossible. <laughs> <laughs> Bravo. I knew I could depend on Terry to, to say what I want. <laughs> okay, this is the first Michael Wilcox binding on the bibliography of the Grabhorn Press. Uh, the, the, the pattern, I mean, it looks sort of like, you know, an 18th century French binding with the, the repeated pattern on the cover. It's the, the Grabhorn Press dolphin with blue and green uh, onlays for each one. There are, I think, about 500 onlays on that binding. Every one of them put down perfectly. This is on the Grabhorn Press Peyote Ritual by Monroe Satoki. This is on uh, Ashendeen Press, 11 Books of the Golden Ass. Now, the interesting thing about this is it's really hard to photograph this binding because there are three planes in, in the binding. The first in the back is, a, is well, I can read to you a little bit about this better than I can. I chose a green and leafy design because this seemed appropriate for the rural and youthful mood of the book. On the front cover I have placed the young Lucius boozing and recklessly ignoring the sweet rose of reason, but on the back cover I have him sobered and, in sobered ass shape, reaching for the rose. Spread over the two covers in gold line I have, I hope, depicted Psyche at the moment when she discovers Cupid to be her husband. Now, you have, in making photographs of bindings like this, you have to trade off whether you're going to get the gilt or whether you're going to get the black. And, and so we, you can't really see those images in black very well in the photograph. This binding is on the Grabhorn Press Leaves of Grass. And he says, the, impressions, the depressions in the boards which hold the grass-shaped onlays were made using a simple lino-cut block. The scarf-joined onlays were first assembled off the book to form complete pictures, which were then cut into strips before attaching to the covers in tooling and gold. I cut the star especially for this binding, and the titling was done with handle letters. The black line technique of the designs derives from the style of the illustrations, while the content of the designs comes mainly from the line, lilac and star and bird twined with the chant of my soul, and when lilacs last in the dooryard bloom. This is on Edward Young's Night Thoughts, illustrated by William Blake and published in 1797. This was the only old book that I commissioned him to do, and I, I sort of regret it in a way. I'm not sure that you should commission new bindings on old books like that. But he says about this one, For this design I have not attempted to follow closely either Young or Blake, but have instead created a sort of fantasy using some of the elements which occur in the text. My aim has been toward the mood and mystery of night rather than any specific statement. I think he did a good job of evoking the mood and mystery of night with that binding. This binding is on uh, Samson Agonistes, which was Victor Homer's first book. Uh, from my taste, that's a little bit too pictorial, and that looks a little bit too much like Paul Bunyan rather than Samson. But again, you know, the, the craftsmanship is there. I mean, it's it's a beautifully done piece of work. Uh, no, it's silver tool. So what what do you call it, Deborah? Silver? Palladium. This is on Hobson's French and Italian collectors and their bindings, illustrated from examples in the library of J.R. Abbey. And it's interesting, you know, that people come and have seen some of these. This is the first time I've ever shown the slides of these bindings, but some people have seen some of them in my shop. And like this one has never really appealed to me. But Richard Landon, uh, who's the uh, librarian, Fisher Library at University of Toronto, came in and loved it, thought it was by far the best of the 12, and wants to buy it. So uh, everyone seems to have their favorite among these bindings. This is on the, the Gill Four Gospels. Uh, and I'll read to you briefly about that, how, how he came. To 
Some notes on the four Gospels design. Each of the evangelists has around his halo some reference to a parable peculiar to his Gospel. The tares among the corn for St. Matthew, the growth of seed for St. Mark, the barren fig for St. Luke, and the vine and the branches for St. John. The sower on the back cover, although not mentioned by St. John, symbolizes the purpose of all the Gospels, while on the front cover the feeding of the 5,000 is a miracle common to all the evangelists. I think that the rest of the design is straightforward enough. Christ, the Lamb of God, the light of the world, etc., and the multitude or mob below his feet, and the devil at his elbow. The stars are to emphasize Christ's cosmic nature and God's universal presence. I'd like to commission sometime a series of bindings on that book. The Four Gospels tends to bring, the Gil Four Gospels tends to bring the best out of binders. This is a, uh, the one I get to keep out of the 12. This is on a book I published called The Work and Play of Adrian Wilson. Again, it's kind of hard to read The Work and Play of Adrian Wilson in that because you have to trade off between the gilt pattern that overlays the, in, the, the colored inlays of letters. Um, and we were sort of puzzled why I did the, 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 the lettering upside down and backwards on the back cover. And as a, as a typographer, I should have known, but he says, I've used a sort of poster design for this with letters adopted from Cox Neuland typeface. The back cover gives a compositor's view. In other words, when you hold the type stick in your hand to set type, that's what it would look like. The overlaying design in gold is derived from a double-page layout of various shapes arranged to produce a somewhat foreshortened view of a printer's upper and lower type cases. And this is the last one. This is on uh, the Bruce Rogers' Fra Luca di Pacioli, published by the Grolier Club in 1931, I believe. Uh, this is, is a pretty staggering piece of craftsmanship. It is a beautiful binding. And I brought it with me. Uh, because a lot of these slides, you can't really tell what I mean. You know, you look at that and it shines because I had a very good photographer do it, but you, you can't really tell what good craftsmanship is. But I brought this binding along with me, and you're welcome to look at it. I'd appreciate it if you wouldn't touch it because this many people, you know, handling a binding will cause it problems. Uh, but it's up here to take a look at, and I hope that I have ended this on a slightly positive note showing some very fine bindings because I think there is some wonderful work being done, and I just would like to see more.